Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning, Graceway. I hope your Sunday is off to a great start and the worship service is already being a blessing to you. I want to take just a moment to introduce my good friend, Ed Goodman, as our guest speaker for today. Uh, Ed currently serves as the Gospel to Every Home Coordinator for the Central Kentucky Network of Baptists. What that means is Ed is responsible for assisting the more than 100 churches in our network throughout Central Kentucky with helping to resource and plan and train all of our churches in this shared effort of taking the gospel to the doorstep of every home here in our state. Ed has provided great leadership and has faithfully served our churches in ways that many people, especially even those here at Graceway, will never know. Ed has also served in his time of ministry as a pastor and associational director of missions in the state of West Virginia prior to returning home to Kentucky not long ago. You may also recognize his wife, Emily, who is here with him today as one of the meteorologists on TV on WLEX 18 News here in Lexington. So would you please join me in giving a warm welcome to Ed Goodman as he comes this morning to preach the word here at Graceway. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, let me invite you to open with me to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, and I want to share with you a few thoughts this morning from one of my favorite passages of Scripture in the entire New Testament. Um, this morning we're going to look at uh, ways that we can uh, not only share the gospel with other people, but ways we can continue to faithfully share the gospel, even when people may respond in ways that are unexpected or undesired. How many of you know that whenever you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone, not everyone is going to be ready, willing, and uh, excited in that moment to pray to receive Christ? You're going to get some resistance. You're going to get some opposition. Uh, You may get some apathy or indifference. Uh, But we're going to look at the Apostle Paul this morning as he shares the gospel, uh, even as his very life is on the line. Ever since the 1940s, the Ad Council has been the leading producer of public service announcements. But of the thousands of campaigns that they have produced, probably my favorite campaign is one that's entitled, Don't Almost Give. It's one of the most powerful PSA campaigns that they've ever produced. In one of their uh, commercials, uh, a man with crutches is struggling to go up a flight of concrete stairs And the narrator says these words, this is a man who almost learned to walk at a rehab center that almost got built by people who almost gave money. And then after a brief pause, he continues and says, almost gave. How good is almost giving? About as good as almost walking. There's another ad that shows a homeless man curled up in a ball on a pile of rags, and only one ratty bed sheet shields him from the frigid winter cold of the evening. The narrator says, this is Jack Thomas. Today, someone almost brought Jack something to eat. Someone else almost brought him to a shelter, and even someone else almost brought him a warm blanket. Jack Thomas, well, he almost made it through the night. 
There's a final ad that shows an older woman's an older woman sitting alone in a room staring out a window, and there, the narrator says, this is Sarah Watkins. A lot of people almost helped her. One almost cooked for her, another almost drove her to the doctor, and still another almost stopped by to say hello. They almost helped, they almost gave of themselves, but almost giving is the same as not giving at all. And each one of these ads ends with a simple Get direct message that says, don't almost give. Give. It's pretty powerful. Think about the word almost. It's a pretty sad word in just about anybody's dictionary. It keeps company with words like if and nearly. It's a cousin to phrases like just about and should have. Almost is a word that smacks of missed opportunities and lost chances. Uh, I can remember hearing about an Olympian by the name of Tim McKee, who was edged out of first place in the 400-meter race by two thousandths of a second. Now imagine coming that close to a gold medal, but coming up short by .002 seconds. He almost won a gold medal. But there's no place in the record books for almost gold medals. Uh, I remember in 2010, now I am a convictional Kentucky Wildcats fan. Can I get a witness? Now, I, on any given night, I've got about four favorite teams. Number one is always Kentucky, but I'm also rooting fiercely for anybody playing against Duke or North Carolina or the University of Tennessee. Amen. Can we get some hallelujahs in the house for that? Well, I remember now, so I'm always a Cats fan, right? You can call, I'm rooting for the Cats. But I remember in 2010, my third year of Bible college, the Butler Bulldogs were a Cinderella basketball team, and they had made their way through the tournament. They got all the way to the championship game playing against the Duke Blue Devils. And so even though I'm normally a Cats fan, that night I was a dog. I was rooting for the Butler Bulldogs. And I remember Butler had the final possession with about four seconds to go, and they had to go the length of the floor. And they inbounded it to their small forward, and he got just about to the right side of half court, and he heaved up a shot, and I thought, yes, they're going to win the national championship if that goes in. And the ball hit the rim, bounced around, and fell out of the cylinder, and it was so close. And I hate to say this in church, but that night, Duke won the national championship. <laughs> and uh, it just, it broke my heart. Butler almost won a national title, but they came up short. You know, everybody can relate to the idea of almost. You know, uh, in baseball, there were many times where I almost hit a home run. Uh, in business, there were many times where I almost closed a deal. Uh, there were times in sales where I almost made a sale. Everybody can relate to the concept of almost. But as the old saying goes, almost doesn't count except in horseshoes and, and hand grenades. That's exactly right. Um, as disappointing as some things in life might be, there's nothing as disappointing to the heart of the Lord, I believe, as people who almost place their trust in him. 
except perhaps those who claim to place trust in him, but they're almost committed to what God has called them to do. I want to tell you what my heart is. You know, it's, it's ironic that God called me back to Kentucky and had me quarterback an evangelism initiative because my heart is really for discipleship. You know, one of the things that I can't get out of my mind is the verse in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where Jesus charges his disciples with the demands that he places on their lives. And he says, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Those are the demands of discipleship. But one of the things, I'll tell you, it's, it's kind of like a juxtaposition. Nothing brings my heart greater joy than to see people who used to think that they couldn't serve Jesus Christ with their full potential suddenly turn a corner and begin to be fruitful for the sake of his glory. I love seeing that. But on the flip side of that, it breaks my heart that week after week after week all across this nation, people sit in churches and they never ever take steps of faith. They never ever experience steps of growth in their life. And I want to tell you, it breaks my heart to think that by at least some counts, 98% of Christians will never once in their lifetime lead someone else to faith in Jesus Christ. Think about how heartbreaking that is. Now, who is Jesus Christ to us? Well, if you say anything less, then he is the greatest treasure in this entire universe. He is the one not only worth living for, but even worth dying for, because he's that precious and valuable. If we say anything less than that, we're being vastly unbiblical and we don't really get who he is or what he's called us to do. And yet the one who shed his precious blood and let that blood run down Calvary's old rugged cross, we're willing to come to church and sing about it. And we say, yes, Jesus, we'll pray the prayer and we'll get our fire insurance. But if you ask me to go knock on somebody's door, and tell them about you, that's where I draw the line. Oh, Jesus, if you ask me to give sacrificially, no, I'm not going to do that. I'd rather serve myself than serve other people. Oh, dear. we have all sorts of excuses. <coughs> and as we come to Acts chapter 26, we see a lost man in this passage of Scripture named King Agrippa who is almost persuaded in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And it's interesting that the lost man in this passage of Scripture may not be much different than professing Christians who sit in pews and sit in church week after week after week after week. Now that's a hard word. Hi, my name's Ed. I'm sure you're glad to see me now that I've told you something so heavy and challenging. But I'm just trusting this morning that the Holy Spirit will tug at your heart and convict your heart. If there's anything in your life that you're not willing to yield to him. If there's anything in your life that you aspire to more than faithfulness and fruitfulness for him. Then may the Lord crucify those desires. May we sacrifice those desires at the altar of grace this morning. And walk out of here newly committed to win souls for him and be fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. 
Nothing is more disappointing than someone who almost trusts the Lord. And all throughout the Bible, we see examples of people who were almost persuaded in the Lord. Pharaoh almost listened to Moses on several occasions, but his heart ended up hardened toward the Lord. Jonah almost experienced the joy of the greatest Old Testament revival, but he ended up having a pity party underneath the shade tree because people got saved. How sad is that? Jesus called himself the door. And Judas Iscariot served in ministry for three years alongside the doorway to heaven. He even kissed the doorway to heaven, but fell short of being redeemed by the Lord of glory. And this morning we're going to ex examine perhaps the most tragic Old Test or New Testament story uh, that I have ever found. And that's the story of King Agrippa, who was almost... Persuaded, And so if you have your Bibles this morning, let me invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative word. Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 22, says this. Paul is speaking, and he says, Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Verse 24. Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. And then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. King James renders it so beautifully. Almost thou persuadest me. To be a Christian. And then verse 29, Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. And I want you to know that Paul's prayer for those people in first century Caesarea Maritima, where this was taking place, <coughs> is the same prayer that I have for you today. That you would not only become almost, but altogether persuaded in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and you would leave this place today ready to lay your life down for the sake of His glory and His call on your life. We're going to look at what it means to be almost persuaded this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for your faithful people who have come out to worship this morning. Uh, Lord, this is undoubtedly a challenging word. And I know that uh, it is sometimes very difficult uh, to come face to face with uh, our failures, our sins, our inadequacies. Uh, Lord, but I also know that the conviction of your Holy Spirit is not meant for our condemnation. It is not meant for uh, our embarrassment or even our discomfort. It is ultimately meant for our good. We know that you chasten those that you love. And so, Father, I pray that your precious people who are gathered here today uh, would be granted the courage uh, 
and the boldness. Not to run away from conviction, but to run to conviction. I know that the mission force of this side of Lexington is sitting right in this uh, sanctuary this morning. And so I know that uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, these can be the champion soul winners, disciple makers, teachers, baptizers, and leaders of a great revivalistic and evangelistic movement. Father, I pray that it will be that way. I pray that you will strengthen your people and encourage your people, even as you challenge your people this morning through the preaching of your word. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. The Apostle Paul has been put on trial for preaching the gospel. Here in Acts chapter 26, we see the fifth of Paul's five defenses that are scattered throughout the end of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 22, Paul gives his first defense on the steps of the temple court. In Acts chapter 23, he gives his second defense before the Sanhedrin. In Acts 24, he gives his defense before Felix. In chapter 25, he gives his defense before Festus. And as we come to Acts chapter 26, he is now giving his fifth and final defense before King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, one of the tetrarchs of the Roman Empire. Paul is standing in front of two of the most powerful men of the day. Not just King Agrippa, but also the noble Festus. And he is standing in front of these men, having been arrested for preaching the gospel. And you have to picture uh, this scene to really get its full impact. But Paul is led out in front of these two powerful men, and he's shackled up. He's in a, uh, an amphitheater or stadium of sorts on the coast of the city of Caesarea Maritima in the northwestern part of Israel overlooking the breezy Mediterranean Sea. And so Paul, having been arrested for preaching the gospel, being on trial for preaching the gospel, how does he respond? In a great irony that demonstrates his passion and faithfulness, the man who has been arrested and put on trial and is risking his life for preaching the gospel is preaching the gospel. <laughs> That's what he's doing. Um, it's an amazing thing that Paul, in what could be his last day, his last act, says that if today is going to be my final day on earth, I'm going to take somebody else to heaven with me. And uh, we see that in Acts 26, as Paul preaches the gospel in virtual defiance, of the people that have arrested him, he preaches the gospel in a very unique way. The first 21 verses of this chapter constitute Paul's testimony. Uh, you can read verses 1 through 21, and you'll see Paul's testimony. And he gives his testimony in really three parts. He talks about his life before Jesus Christ, how he was a murderer and a persecutor of the church. He was a great sinner. And then the second part of his testimony refers to his conversion experience. Uh, you can read about that in Acts chapter 9. On the road to Damascus, Paul is uh, struck blind by Jesus Christ. 
And Paul tells of his conversion experience. And then the third part of his testimony is how Jesus Christ has changed his life and how the trajectory of his life has been transformed by the Lord of glory. And I want you to know that all of us that know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior have the same three components of our testimony. We should all be able to talk about our life before Christ, our conversion experience, and our life since Christ has come in and changed us and transformed us. And as we come to verses 22 through 29, Paul begins the summation of his testimony. And he's calling these men who have heard his testimony to follow the Christ that he follows. And look at what he says in verse 22. Therefore, having obtained help from God. Now, what kind of help had Paul obtained from God? Paul had obtained all kinds of help, but primarily the help that he had been given was through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit had guided his footsteps and given him power, boldness, and courage to share the gospel with everybody that he had come in contact with. And he says, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand. I love that language because Paul says, you might arrest me for preaching the gospel, but I'm going to stand on the power of the gospel even if it costs me my life. I want to tell you, we need a revival of this kind of conviction in the modern church. I don't know what has happened to the passion of God's people, but it has waned severely. I'm going to have to calm down a little bit. But I'm just telling you, church is not the way it used to be. And I'm not here trying to puff up some Christian nationalist, old school, traditional church model that... May not be relevant in some places anymore, but I'll tell you something that remains relevant and will always be relevant is hot, fiery, passionate preaching, worship that moves us to the core of our souls, and people who are unashamed and willing to be broken before the throne of God for their sin. Whatever happened, you know, I was preaching Wednesday night at my home church, and I was preaching from James chapter 5, 1 through 6, on the subject of greed and the love of money. And James exhorted the rich people of the first century. He says, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming upon you. Woo! I'll tell you, people weren't necessarily encouraged by that verse of Scripture. But what struck me about those words was the fact that you don't see a lot of people weeping and wailing over their sin in church anymore. Could it be... Could there be a correlation between the fact that we don't allow ourselves to be broken over our sin anymore and the lack of passion we see from God's people, particularly in the areas of evangelism, missions, and discipleship? How many of you all remember when you got saved? A show of hands. Now, I want to ask you, what kind of experience was that? Now, I understand that salvation is more than an experience. I'm not trying to diminish salvation in any way. But salvation is certainly experiential. I mean, the gospel is holistic in its efficacy. And so it touches us mind, spirit, and body. The gospel is holistic. It's powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. So, um, when you were saved... What was that experience like for you? Now, I remember when I was saved, and it was in this city. 
I was 13 years old. My grandfather was preaching a revival at a very small church here in Lexington. And I remember that after my grandfather preached that night, I responded to the invitation. And I was so overcome with emotion that I couldn't even tell my grandfather why I had come up front. But he knew. And even though I couldn't get the words out of my mouth, he simply said, do you want to be saved? And all I could do was nod. And I knelt down at a little altar at the front of that church. And I stained the carpet of that church with my tears. Tears of repentance. Tears of release. Tears that revealed the brokenness of my own heart. And the saving grace of the loving Savior. Now folks, when was the last time that that happened here at Graceway? When was the last time that that happened in the privacy of your prayer closet? You know, there is something to Paul's words here when he says, To this day I stand. Uh, has the church really been standing on the message of the old-time religion? That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the methods and methodologies of the church will inevitably change. They're subject to change, and uh, we're going to try to always meet culture where culture is. But there are some things that will never change, and that's the sinfulness of man, the graciousness of God, and the necessity of faith and repentance in order to be saved. And I'm here to tell you that faith and repentance are not just meant to be exercised at the moment of salvation, at the point of justification. Those are things that are meant to be repetitively experienced in the life of a Christian. And I'm here to tell you that the gospel I'm preaching this morning, just like Paul stands in this account, I stand on those bedrock truths. And I'm here to tell you that if you haven't experienced a sense of brokenness or repentance in your own life, maybe you're the one who needs to uh, plead with God for revival in your own life. You say, who are you to come into this church and talk to us like that? I'm nobody. I'm just somebody who is standing on the truth of God's word. And I'm here to tell you that we owe Jesus a lot more than we give him. And maybe the reason that we're not seeing the kind of evangelistic fruit and spiritual fruit that we would like to see as God's people is because we've abandoned some core bedrock truths and practices that we see demonstrated here in the life of the Apostle Paul. And Paul says, to this day I stand. And then notice what he says. He said, I'm witnessing both to small and to great. I love that because the gospel is a gospel not just for a certain segment of people. You know, we talk a lot about the exclusivity of the gospel, and rightly so. Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's the way, the truth, the life. There's only one way. And so the gospel is exclusive in that regard, but the gospel is inclusive in the fact that it's for all people. 
You know, what is the vision of the gospel? The ultimate vision of the gospel is what we see in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where before the throne room of God in heaven, every tribe, tongue, and nation is standing around the throne of God and worshiping him. And I'm here to tell you that if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or you profess him as your Lord and Savior, you have a debt of obligation to everyone in your circle of influence. The people in your family, the people you work with, the people that you live near, the people that you do life together with, and the people that you may have a casual association with. Even the lady at the gas station who rings up your coffee and gas four days a week. Or the stock boy in the bread aisle at Kroger that you see periodically. You have a debt of obligation to everyone to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, I'm, that's what I'm doing. I'm witnessing both the small and great. But I'm not saying anything different than what the prophets and what Moses said would come. And this kind of strikes at the context of this passage of Scripture. Paul had been arrested, in essence for preaching a different theology than what the Jewish uh, religious leaders had been preaching. Paul had been saying that this Jesus Christ that you crucified on the cross of Calvary, he's the prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. And the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they said, uh-uh, no way, no way. They thought that the Messiah would be a great military leader. And this Jesus was just a, a, a lowly carpenter. He was a nomad who just went to and from uh, one city to another. And yes, uh, miraculous works were attributed to him. But there's no way he was the Messiah. Paul said, yes, he was. And Paul went a step further. And he said, look, <coughs> you're going to try to accuse me of preaching a newfangled theology. You're going to try to accuse me of, of sort of uh, launching a new cultish type of belief system? Well, you can do that, but you need to be aware of one thing. I'm not preaching anything different than what the prophets and what Moses preached from the very beginning. That Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And so Paul was linking himself with all of the Old Testament prophets. And how many of you know that in every single one of the 1,189 chapters of the Bible, Jesus Christ is the centerpiece and the proper interpretation of every one of those chapters. I find my Lord in the Bible wherever I chance to look. He is the theme of the Bible, the heart and core of the book. He is the centerpiece of this entire revelation. And so Paul is saying, I'm preaching the very same message that Moses preached and Elijah preached and Daniel and Ezekiel and Hosea and all of the Old Testament prophets. I'm preaching the same thing that they've preached. And with that, saying that this gospel would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles, he concludes his testimony, not by his choosing, mind you, but at this point, as verse 23 ends, we see a transition in this account. From this point forward through the end of the chapter, we're going to see three different responses to the gospel message. 
that I want you to be aware of. And I think that as you continue throughout this 40 days of prayer and you prepare as a church to launch this initiative here at Graceway called Gospel to Every Home, I want you to see that there are things that you can apply to your own walk that we see here in this account in Acts 26. And we're going to see not only three responses to the gospel message that you just might encounter as you go door to door, and share the gospel with people, but you're also going to be able to derive some principles and practices for how to deal with people who respond to the gospel in these ways. And so let's take a look at these three responses to the gospel and see what kind of truths we can derive here. Now, first of all, as we come to verse 24, we're going to see that some people absolutely reject the gospel message. How many of you know you're going to share the gospel with some people who just don't want to hear it? They ain't ready to hear it. They don't want to hear it. They don't care about it, and they don't care that they don't care about it. Well, that's what we see. Now, as Paul finishes in verse 23 his testimony, and he talks about how the gospel of Christ would proclaim light, not just to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles as well. Verse 24 says, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. <laughs> Festus couldn't take it anymore. I think he was completely offended by the fact that Paul was linking himself with Jewish heroes like Moses and the prophets of the law. Well, uh, he interrupts Paul in essence. It says with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Now, when you think about a lot of the people who ran around with Jesus Christ, you know, Jesus did not surround himself with the academic elite of his day, did he? No, the people who ran around with Jesus were common ordinary, everyday blue-collar guys. He hung around with fishermen and tax collectors. Um, Peter, James, John, Matthew. Now, these were ordinary, everyday men. And so, Jesus, you know, the Bible says in Acts 4 that these were ignorant and unlearned men, but the world stood up and took notice that they'd been with Jesus. But they were not the, necessarily the, the smartest guys in the room. But now Paul was a little bit different than that. Paul was an intellect. Paul was a very smart individual. I've heard countless preachers say that Paul had the ancient equivalent of a modern triple PhD. Paul sat at the feet of the greatest philosophers of the day, the greatest counselors of the hour. He learned from the very best. And Festus is in essence saying, Paul, what are you talking about? Saying that you're preaching the same message as Moses? You've gotten so smart, you're stupid. And as I think about the scene that Paul found himself in here, shackled up in front of two powerful men, surrounded by people in an audience, I can hear in my mind's ear laughter that permeates that crowd. Paul, you've gotten so smart, you're stupid. This was not meant to be a flattering statement. This was meant to be an insult. 
And how many of you know that whenever you share the gospel with some people, they're not only going to be offended by it, they're going to try to embarrass you for representing the gospel, right? The American church has forgotten what it means to pay the price for being a gospel ambassador. But Paul was paying the price here. And I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, because there may be some of you here right now at this moment, even as I'm talking, you're debating in your own heart and you're saying, well, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to go to a home and knock on a door and tell somebody about Jesus. I've never had to do that before in my life. And I don't know at the age of 25 or 85 or whatever your age might be if I'm ready to do that now. And I'm here to tell you whether or not you do it is going to reveal what kind of commitment you have in your heart and your life toward the one who paid the ultimate price for your soul. I'm not going to stand up here and Listen, it's okay if you struggle with that decision. If you're doing something that you've never done before... There's going to be a test of faith. We're going to have to uh, determine whether or not we're going to gird up our loins and go out and really share the gospel with people. We're going to have to debate that. And so if you're struggling, I don't want to stand up here and condemn you for having that struggle within your heart. But what I do want to make clear is that if you end up coming down on the side that I'm not going to go out and knock on doors, I'm not going to go out and share the gospel with people, I'm telling you, that is not okay. It is not okay. Why? Because the Great Commission tells us that we are called to make disciples as we go into all the earth, and we are called to baptize and teach as we make disciples. And so, I don't want to give you any illusions. I, the one thing that I want you to know is that I love you enough to be straight with you. And I don't think there's any sort of biblical precedent that says it's okay to just excuse yourself from your evangelistic responsibilities toward lost people. But the question then becomes, if I do go out, and I hope you do, what happens when I encounter somebody that wants to insult me and make fun of me like Festus is insulting Paul? Well, I think the answer is found in Paul's response here. What do we do when we knock on someone's door or when we encounter somebody at McDonald's or Kroger or wherever it is and we share the gospel and they absolutely reject it? Well, look at verse 25. Look at how Paul responds. He says, I am not mad, most noble Festus. Whew. That's just a good response. I'll tell you why that's a good response. Because I know what I would be tempted to do in that situation. I grew up in Winchester, so I got just enough a country boy in me to where somebody tries to insult me in public. I mean, I would not, I'll just go ahead and tell you, in my flesh, I would not respond the way Paul responded here. If I'm standing shackled up in front of people and somebody makes fun of me and says, Ed, you've gotten so smart you're stupid, I want to tell you what the country boy in me is going to want to do. Come down off your throne, big boy, and we'll see just how stupid I really am. But now when you're sharing the gospel with people, 
That's kind of a, an incongruent message, right? Here, let me tell you about the love of God, and if you don't like it, I'll shove it down your face and slap you. That's, that's just an incongruent message. But Paul was not someone who allowed himself to be driven by his flesh. And so Paul did not experience the pitfall that I imagine I would be tempted to experience in that situation. Paul responds to this insult with respect and with restraint. And notice, after Festus insults him, Paul respectfully responds to him. I am not mad, most noble Festus. You see, he responded in a way that this government leader retained his honor and dignity. Paul was not going to allow this man to insult him out of the love he had in his heart for him. And there's something that we can derive from Paul's response here. Paul had already made the decision. Paul had already arrived at a place in his heart and life that he loved lost people. And he was not going to allow them to push him out of that place of love and compromise his heart for the Lord or for them. He says, I speak the words of truth and reason. And then something happens between verse 25 and 26. Paul's attention shifts. Because notice the very beginning of verse 26. For the king. Well, who was he addressing before verse 26? He was addressing the noble Festus, right? And so between verse 25 and verse 26, his attention shifts. And so we can glean something else from Paul's response. If you go to somebody's door in gospel to every home effort, and they absolutely reject the gospel, they don't want anything to do with it, and they even try to goad you into a fight, be willing to walk away and focus your attention on someone else. We don't have to be Bible-thumping people who beat people over the head with the Word of God, right? We can... Paul gives us precedent here. Not every person that we engage with the gospel is going to be ready or receptive right then. There are some people who are ripe and ready and they're low-hanging fruit. Those are the people we want to gravitate to. But what you have to do is follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. There may be a time when you engage someone and the Holy Spirit is guiding you. Challenge them. Push against them. And... I'm just telling you, follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You can never go wrong by following his leading. But there are times in which we need to be ready to just walk away. Share the gospel and walk away. Share the gospel and walk away. Repeat after me. Share the gospel and? All right. And so when people absolutely reject the gospel, how do you respond? Share the gospel and walk away. The Word will do the work. The Spirit will do His work. And we can rest in the fact that God will save those that need to be saved and are ready to be saved. And so, um, 
We preach the gospel, share the gospel, and walk away. Now, as we come to verse 26, Paul shifts his attention to the king. And look what it says. The king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. And so Paul is shifting his attention. If Festus is not going to get saved today, maybe the king will. And so Paul's, Paul just wants to see somebody come to know Jesus. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. What wasn't done in a corner? The crucifixion of Christ was done very publicly. People knew that Jesus had been crucified. They knew that he had been convicted through a sham of a trial. And they knew that he had resurrected from the tomb. And there were witnesses to verify it. At least 512 witnesses, according to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Probably far more than that. And so, Paul says, I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. And then look at what Paul does in verse 27. He backs King Agrippa into a corner. Now, this is the brilliance of the Apostle Paul, and this is something that you should not shy away from as you try to win souls for Jesus Christ. You need to be willing to be direct and honest and upfront when you share the gospel with people. And that's what Paul does here in verse 27. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And then he qualifies that question by saying, I know that you do believe. Now, I'm just a guy from Winchester. I've been afforded many educational opportunities, and I'm thankful for them. But uh, you don't need a Ph.D. in Greek philosophy to know that when Paul asks a question like this, there's really only two viable responses. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? It's a pretty straightforward question. What are the only two viable responses to that? Yes or no. That's right. Yes or no. Now think about this. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Only two viable responses. Now, if King Agrippa would have said, yes, I believe the prophets, then he, he would have opened the door for Paul to just guide him right to the point of salvation. Paul was challenging him and backing him into a corner. And that's what we have to do with some people. We have to guide them to recognize that they have to make a decision about Jesus Christ this side of heaven. Because so many people are trying to avoid a decision about Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you a no decision is a decision of no. And so many people try to wiggle their way out of a decision about Christ by saying, well, I'm just not going to make a decision. And Paul forces Agrippa into a decision. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? If he would have said, yes, today was the day of his salvation. Paul would have been able to lead him in the gospel components. And hopefully he would have repented and placed faith in Christ. That's one response, yes. But if he would have said no... No, I don't believe the prophets. Well, you have to realize a significant portion of his political constituency were Jewish people. And so if you tell Jewish people, I don't believe the prophets, how are they going to take that? Well, that would have been political suicide. I mean, we saw uh, how, why did Pilate 
convict Jesus uh, or allow Jesus' conviction to stand? Why did Pilate allow Jesus to be crucified? Why did he allow this known murderer Barabbas to be let free and send Jesus to be crucified? Because he was afraid of a political revolt. And so Jewish people had a very strong political strength in that culture. And so Paul was saying, look Agrippa, you either need to believe the prophets or disbelieve the prophets, but there's no middle ground. He was forcing Agrippa into a decision. And I'm here to tell you there are some people in your life that need to be forced into a decision about Jesus Christ. There will be people upon whose doors you knock that they need to be forced into a decision about Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with telling people you either say yes to Christ or you say no to Christ, but there is no middle ground. And what Agrippa shows us as we come to verse 28 is not that some people absolutely reject the gospel. That's what Festus shows us. But Agrippa shows us that some people almost receive the gospel. Agrippa shows us that some people want to take a middle ground road. Look at what he said in verse 28. Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost persuaded. You know, I look up, looked up that word almost, and it has a chilling meaning. The word almost means middle ground or neutral. And so Agrippa was saying, Paul, I want to take a middle ground road on this Christianity thing. I don't want to say I believe the prophets. I don't want to say I reject the prophets. But I want to take this middle ground road, and I don't want to make any decision. And there are so many people that try to ride that middle ground road. And I'm here to tell you, it's not just lost people in the culture. It's people in the church that at times try to ride the middle ground road of Christ. Well, you know what? If I just show up to church... And I attend fairly frequently, and I check that box off, and I give enough to where the pastor knows that I'm in, I'm in. Well, maybe that'll be enough, and I can go about the rest of my life and do what I really want to do Monday through Saturday. I wonder how much of that mentality is prevalent in the pews of our churches? It's an honest question. And I, I did not come here to make anybody feel bad. I came here with a word that would allow us to examine where we really are. I mean, how many of us could say, not just that I'm willing to follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul and shake things up, and pursue lost souls. How many people here crave following the Apostle Paul and saying, no matter what happens, I want to be a vigorous, vital soul winner? I don't, I just don't see it. Hardly anywhere I go, honestly. Even from people who say they're pastors, I don't see that kind of passion. And it, I'm not trying to condemn anybody I'm just wondering what happened to the passion for winning lost souls we used to be a denomination that was known as soul winning people 
And Paul tried to back Agrippa into a corner. And Agrippa said, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And you know, a Christian, according to verse 28, is something that you become. You become a Christian. It's, and you can become a lot of things in this life. You can become an insurance salesman or a firefighter. You can become a deacon. You can, I mean, you could even become bad stuff. You could become a drug addict or a prostitute. Uh, or you can become good things like you can become a husband or a wife or a brother or sister. I mean, you can become a lot of things. But the only thing that you will ever become that impacts eternity and makes an eternal difference is whether or not you become a Christian. And that's what we're seeking to get people to do through Gospel at Every Home is to become a Christian. But in order for us to lead people to be vibrant Christians, we must first become vibrant Christians ourselves because it is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to lead someone to a place you've never been yourself. And so Agrippa tried to take a middle ground road. He tried to say, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. But Paul said in verse 29, he said, I would to God. That not only you, King Agrippa, but all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Now Paul shows us that some people already represent the gospel. And so as we go out and gospel to every home efforts, we're going to knock on some people's doors. And they're going to answer the door. We're going to begin a conversation with them. We're going to find out, ah, oh, you're Christian. That's great. Well, have a good day. Bye. Is that what we're going to do? Man, I hope not. You find somebody who claims to already be a Christian Enlist them to come out with you. Hey, what are you doing today? I mean, the game's not on for another hour and a half. Can you give me 45 minutes? You want to go with us? We're sharing the gospel with people. Come out. Come out with us. Be a part of what we're doing. Are you, are you a part of a church home? I mean, you profess to be a Christian. Where do you go to church? Are you a member there? How long has it been since you've been to that church? Come out with us, right? Some people already represent the gospel. Just like Paul here in verse 29, he already represented the gospel. And what was his prayer? His prayer was that everyone in that auditorium, in Caesarea Maritima, that heard him wouldn't just be almost persuaded like Agrippa, but that they would be fully persuaded like Paul. Paul said, I wish all of you all would be just like I am, fully persuaded and then he looks down and he realizes that he's shackled up. And he says, I wish you were just like me, except for the chains. And you know the great irony of this scene here? Is that the most liberated man in the place was the one in shackles. How can you say that? Because you can be in prison, but if you've got Jesus Christ, you are fully delivered. Jesus Christ is the source for deliverance and liberty. 
And I'm here to tell you, if you're shackled up by your fear of going door to door, if you're shackled up by insecurity about, man, there's no way I could measure up. I'm not Billy Graham. I can't preach the gospel. I'm not D.L. Moody. I can't share the gospel with other people. I'm here to tell you, Jesus Christ is the source of deliverance for whatever is holding you back from serving him. I want to get a mission force wound up. Why? Look, I've, this, is, this is one of the few times that I've been to Grace. I've been to Grace Way. I can count the number of times I've been to this church on one hand. But I'll tell you something I already know about this church. Lexington needs what you have. I can't think of anybody who wouldn't be blessed by coming and being a part of this congregation. And so, how can you Add to the missional and evangelistic effectiveness of your church. It starts by saying, whatever is keeping me from committing myself to being altogether persuaded, Lord, take that out of my heart. Crucify that and teach me how to be fully persuaded. You know, I'm... <laughs> I'm Southern Baptist by conviction. I've got a lot of ministry heroes. Some people are surprised, though, by some of them. Now, the, the ministry heroes I have that people understand are some names you'll probably recognize. I love Adrian Rogers. I like David Jeremiah. I'm a big fan of other well-known Southern Baptists. I like Herschel York and Paul Chitwood and Adam Dooley. Uh, these are great men, men that I greatly revere and admire. But I've got one ministry hero that some people have never heard of, and I want to tell you what her name is. Her name is Louise Chapman. You say, now hold on a second. A ministry hero? We don't believe in women in ministry. Actually, we do. We don't believe women can be pastors. We don't believe, we believe the Baptist faith and message says the pastoral office is reserved for men, right? But we do believe in women in ministry. <laughs> We've got a lot of women in ministry at Safe Harbor, and they don't just serve in the children's ministry. They serve in a lot of ministries throughout the church. The pastoral office is reserved for men, but every person in Christ has a ministry. Amen. And I want to tell you about Louise Chapman. She was a missionary to Africa in the 1930s and 40s. And don't tell anybody, but she was a Nazarene. Okay. But you know why I like her so much? Because after she came back to the States, and she led the Nazarene version of our International Mission Board, her life mission statement was made public. And I want to share that with you this morning because I think that it captures what it really means to be fully persuaded in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. This is why Louise Chapman is one of my favorite missionaries of all time. And here's what she says. She said, only one out of every 50 people in this world know exactly who they are in Jesus Christ and exactly where they're going. That's 2%. One out of 50 is 2%. 
And she said, if you want to be understood by the 2% of the people in this world, you're going to be misunderstood by the other 98%. Now, some of you, that already eliminates you because you're worried about what the 98% think. But I'm here to tell you that I've chosen to become a part of the fellowship of the 2%. Louise Chapman said, the die has been cast. I've stepped out of the comfort zone. The decision's been made. I am a Christian. I won't look back, let up, slow down, or back away. My past is forgotten, my present is focused, and my future secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, cheap excuses, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, position, promotion, promises, or popularity. I don't have to be first. I don't have to be right. I don't have to be recognized. I don't have to be praised, regarded, or rewarded. I've died to the self-centered, ego-driven, limp-lip lifestyle. I live by faith. I learn by submitting, labor by love, lead by example, and lift by prayer. My dream is developed, my decision definite, my desire determined, my discipline dedicated, my devotion distinct. My face is set, my pace is fast, my road is narrow, and my way is tough. But my companions are strong, my counselor is reliable, my purpose is pure, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, delayed, or denied. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder in the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I will not give up, shut up, or let up until I've stirred up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and stood up for the Lord Jesus Christ. I must fight when others faint. Go when others won't. Give till I drop. Teach till all know. And work until the task is finished. And when I lie exhausted on the mission field of God's children, my heavenly Father won't have any trouble recognizing me as one of his own. Fully persuaded in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I wonder... Where are you this morning? Did you come in with a heart full of fire? Are you going to leave with a heart full of fire? I don't know. But I tell you, you've got a decision right now. You can walk out of here this morning with the heart blazing in passion for Jesus Christ like the Apostle Paul. Or you can walk out of here like King Agrippa, almost persuaded. Let's stand together this morning. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.